like that suit, Hank. Um, you're in gray like I am here. I hope nobody puts a picture online and asks the question, who wore it better? Because I think you're going to win. Good morning. Is Miss Greer here this morning? Miss Greer Arjun, is she here with us? Where? There she is, standing up. All right. Everybody, would you put your hands in, hand in the air and wave it like you just don't care? Okay. <laughs> Uh, that's Ms. Greer. Um, I wanted to point Ms. Greer out because earlier in the week we had a wonderful conversation about last week's sermon. She said, there were a couple things you said in last week's sermon that uh, took me for a loop. I want to ask you a couple questions about them. Now, I love that and it's what I want to continue to begin each sermon with. I want to continue to make this, uh, this appeal to you. If you are not connecting or you don't understand where we're going, please come and talk to me, okay? I won't sing Jodeci this morning. Come and talk to me. I want to talk with you, okay? I, I want to, if you just want to email me, if you, if you want to come and meet with me, um, I'll let you buy me lunch and we'll, I'll pray and you'll pay and we'll have a good time. But I want you to understand that this year I am very focused on our church being discipled, growing, okay? I want us to see some net gain in our Christian development. Too many of us are apathetic. We're kind of just like the sediments that are sitting at the bottom of our cast iron pipes. And that when the city comes in and they mess around with our pipes, they focus down and they, they, they do something that gyrates the pipes. I don't know if gyrates the word, but they move the pipes and it agitates the bottom and then all that brown water comes through. It's going to look a little disgusting at the beginning, but I really want you to see the pure waters ahead of a real discipled mind. I want us to focus this year on that. So please, once again, come, come and talk with me. Maybe you just want to share some things. Maybe you don't even have any questions. Maybe you just want to talk about some experiences that you're uh, having. I, I love our Bible fellowship group because I'm learning so much about um, what other people are experiencing at their work. It's always good to hear how brothers and sisters have experienced the same thing. Uh, also, we're going to be working. I, I've got this new little uh, clicker. I'm so excited about it. It's got a little laser beam on it, so if you fall asleep, I'll just shoot this in your eye. I'm going to be looking around. No, I'm kidding. I want to talk this morning about the Christian worldview. Last week, last week we talked about a worldview. But this week I want to talk specifically about the Christian worldview. Mark Knoll, in his book, The Scandal of the evangelical mind has said this. Now let me just define really quickly what an evangelical is. An evangelical is usually used synonymously with Christian, but it describes Protestant Christians, those who are not Catholic, who hold to fundamental beliefs about the Bible, about Christ, about Jesus, who believe that the, the goal and purpose of the church is to continuously Preach the gospel. So evangelize, that's where the word evangelical comes from. But it refers to those Christians who are part of the Protestant Christian uh, denomination. Okay, so 
uh, people like Presbyterians, some, right? More PCA than PCUSA these days. Uh, Southern Baptists, which that's what we are. Uh, Independent Baptists. Um, uh, some Lutherans, okay? And so there's a, there's a large subset, but they really hold to, it's less about denominations and more about principles, more about beliefs. But this is what Mark Knoll, professor at Wheaton College, a Christian university in Chicago, says about the scandal of the evangelical mind. He says, the scandal of the evangelical mind is that there is not much of an evangelical mind. An extraordinary range of virtues is found among the sprawling throngs of evangelical Protestants in North America, including great sacrifice in spreading the message of salvation in Jesus Christ, open-hearted generosity to the needy, heroic personal exertion on behalf of troubled individuals, and the unheralded sustenance of countless church and parachurch communities. He's saying these are the things that Christians in America do well. Notwithstanding all their other virtues, however, American evangelicals are not exemplary for their thinking, and they have not been so for generations. How many of you know who that character is right there? That's the scarecrow from The Wizard of Oz. And he sang a song. What was the name of that song? If I Only Had a Brain. That was the song. And I'm not going to sing it for you. But Noel's point is this. The intellectual aspect of our faith is missing from the evangelical world. We are okay with loving God with all of our heart. So many of us are excited about Christianity, and I, and I am glad you're con excited about Christianity. I do wonder sometimes if you're excited about the God of the Bible. In so many of our churches, there's excitement and little talk about the God of the Bible. In fact, I think when people encounter the real God of the Bible, they don't have as much excitement as they do conviction. Noel is right. We're missing our mind. We love him with our heart. We love him with our soul. There's passion. We will give. We're very philanthropic. When there's crisis, we come to the aid of people. But we are missing the boat when it comes to the evangelical mind. I want you to know that for the last 1900 years, that has not been the case in Christianity, Western culture has been built on the intellectual uh, shoulders of Christians. Science began based upon the belief, as we know, modern science began on the shoulders of Christian men. Sir Francis Bacon, who we give credit for being the man, the philosopher, the mind behind the scientific method 
the way that Westerners approach understanding the physical world was a Christian. Newton was a Christian. These men are buried in Westminster Abbey in London, England. I want you to understand that Copernicus and Galileo were Christians. And for some reason, ever since the beginning of the 20th century, Christianity has lost its mind for God. I want to talk this morning about, or I want to define, give you a sense of what Christian mind is supposed to look like. This is my proposition for the morning. Since Christianity is losing its cultural influence, we must start to reverse the trend by cultivating our minds for Christ. Now, a proposition is simply a statement that's either true or false. And not only is it a statement that's either true or false, but I want to give reason. It's something that requires us to give reason for why it's true. If it's true, there should be reasons for it. But not only that, I want to talk about what we mean by culture this morning. Sometimes we're not sure what the word culture means. Let me define that for you. Culture, when I use the word culture, I'm referring to the intellectual spirit of a given people at a given time reflected in the customs, arts, and social institutions of the day. Let me define that one more time. By culture, I am referring to the intellectual spirit of a given people at a given time reflected in the customs, arts, and social institutions of the day. If you want to know what our people, what our culture, American culture, believes about God and believes specifically about the God of the Bible, all you have to do is go to the movies. Go into our schools. Listen to our leaders. Go on social media. The current status of our culture is one in which God is more or less unwelcome. There was a report this, that I read this past week. There was a Jewish man who set out to prove anti-Semitism in college courses in colleges around the United States. And he went to over 700 institutions. And what he found was that the number one most persecuted group on a college campus today are evangelical Christians. 53% of the colleges that he went to admitted to it. He was shocked because he found that anti-Semitism was, or at least Semitism, was the least persecuted group on college campuses, roughly around 2%. Why is that? It is my hypothesis that Christians have not done much to cultivate the mind and have left us with a stereotype that we have to redeem. What happens? What are the consequences of not having a mind 
The first problem is that we lose our cultural relevance. When it used to be the case that things, bad things happened, or we had a moral issue, or we had a political or social issue come up, we would go to our pastors. Today, we don't go to our pastors. We go to our psychologists from secular universities. We go to our life coach. We go to social media. We listen to the tabloids and to movie stars. Because we don't really believe that pastors have much to say. Especially those who hold to the belief that the Bible is God's inspired, inerrant, infallible word. We've lost our cultural relevance. But not only that, when we lose our mind, we've also lost our morality. Too many Christians have not connected the dots between their beliefs and how they live. A contradiction in beliefs, when our beliefs, our Christian beliefs, are on the periphery of our life, rather than at the central core of our life, there is a disconnect between the way that we live and what we believe. There are too many examples in too many churches of Christians who do not understand why their moral life has to be connected to their spiritual life. They have been taught to separate the two into facts and values. And values are what we believe regardless of the truth, but facts are what really matter. I just heard this past week, Brother Shaw handed me a paper this morning. A woman at a Catholic school, first grade teacher, Broward County, she married her partner, that is, she is a lesbian, and she married her partner, and the Catholic school fired her. What shocked me was the amount of outrage of people who do not understand Good for the Catholic, by the way, who do not understand that your beliefs and your morality are ultimately connected. And are not just ultimately, they are essentially connected. And people were shocked that they did that. And one of the worst things that you hear today is usually people defend or defend their, their stance on why that person should have continued to work. They say, my life, my personal life has nothing to do with my faith or what I believe. Absolutely not. But the thing you hear the most is that there are other Christians who support that. Loss of morality. We're also anti-intellectual. The word anti doesn't mean we just have lost our intellect and we're indifferent. It means we're against it. The predominant theology of the 20th century, says one Christian philosopher, has been let go and let God. Leaving Christians with the idea that the mind is not a part of their spiritual life that needs to be cultivated. Let go and let God. So that now today, when a person brings learning into the pulpit, they are being told that they're not feeding their people. Their people are looking for an experience. 
They are looking for a diet that the world has given to them that other churches that Christianity in the last 20th, in the last century has given to them that says expect emotions, expect a show, expect a feeling instead of expect your mind to be engaged. Not only that, we're producing atheists. We are producing atheists. There is an ever-growing group of Americans. They are young people, and they are known as nuns. They have no religious affiliation. The number one reason given for why the nuns are leaving the Christian faith and organized religion is 49% Pew Research Poll, 49% of them indicate a lack of belief led them to move away from religion. This includes, says the study, many respondents who mention science as the reason they do not believe in religious teachings, including one who said, I am a scientist now and I do not believe in miracles. Others reference common sense, logic, or a lack of evidence, or simply they do not believe in God. When we don't cultivate our Christian mind, we are responsible for increasing the number of atheists. We don't think we have a responsibility to go into the science realm and to be a light for Christ. Or to use common sense with our faith. To use reasons to explain why we believe. And that produces atheists. Don't be shocked when you see the amount of people leaving the church because when they went to church, they were not being given reasons for the faith. Their minds were not being fed. But they had a good show. The show was good. You know what I learned really early in my life about the way that some of these Christian churches put on a show? They don't do it as good as the club that I was at the night before. So I just didn't go at all. Not only that, but we allow sin and heresy to permeate the church. We quickly give up on traditions that have held us together for 2,000 years. Beliefs that have held us together for 2,000 years. So that Christ simply becomes one of many different types of gods. That's called Christian inclusivism. But the church has been Christian exclusive for the last 2,000 years. But because we haven't cultivated the mind, because we haven't emphasized these core doctrines of the faith, we have allowed heresy and sin to come into the church. Not only that, it creates Christians with an insecure faith. How do I know that many of us have an insecure faith? Because you don't talk about it. Because you're not sure of it. You don't know why you believe what you believe. Stephanie and I last night watched a video I asked her if it was too heavy-handed for a Sunday morning service. I wanted to show you the video 
Um, she said six minutes was too long. I said, six minutes? Come on. And the video was 78 questions that an atheist would ask Christians, and it was written by an atheist. It was an atheist asking the questions. And what we did was we just stopped and paused every so often and said, how would you answer this question? Why do you believe what you believe? Listen to what he's saying. We've turned Sunday into a ritual, a tradition, rather than something we come to feed our souls and our minds. So you just come. Check it off the list. God's not impressed. What God wants is a personal relationship with you where you love him with all your mind, soul, body, and strength. Let me ask you a question. How would you respond to questions like these? Don't answer, but in your spirit, to thine own self be true. How would you respond if someone asked you this question? Christianity is basically the same as all other religions. The main thing in common is love. Or, how would you respond to this? Jesus is my personal higher power. But you have to find the higher power that works best for you. I met with a guy one day who was teaching a Bible study at an institution that I will not name. He had come to Christ, so he said, and he said, Jesus is cool. True story. He is my higher power. What I tell the people here in my Bible study is find the higher power that works for you. Then he said, and I quote, one of the guys in here, his boyfriend is his higher power. It works for him. And so it makes him happy, and I'm at peace. He was leading the Bible study. How would you answer that question? You can't take the Bible seriously because it was written by men. Many of you have heard these questions. Or, faith is believing in something that isn't true. Is that your definition of faith? What about this one? You can't force your views on other people. Or the Bible is outdated and irrelevant. Or science has proven that God does not exist. Or life has no meaning. When we die, we die. So live now in whatever way makes you happy. I just want to ask those questions. I want to throw them out to you. I want to throw those statements out to you. And I want to just ask you to... Look in your spirit this morning and answer the question, how would you personally answer those questions? Now, you might do a couple things. Number one, you might agree with them. This has become a very popular stance from Christians to agree when their faith is challenged just to keep the peace. And then they quote Scripture to me and say, Blessed are the peacemakers. What? Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. 
not the peacekeepers. And you don't make peace with falsehood. You make peace with truth. But too many of us today would agree with those. Hey, somebody tells me all the time, yeah, but you know that's going to be offensive. Don't, you can't say that. That'll offend somebody. Well, don't be a jerk when you say it. But if the truth is offensive, you can't control that. Now, yeah, sometimes I hear Christians, sometimes we're a little, we're a little jerky. And we don't need to be that way. But truth does not have anything to do with being nice or not being nice. What's true is true. And you can either deal with it or not deal with it. Well, what about this one? Would you just tell people, just believe without giving them an answer? You see the little icon I use for it? That's hot air. Just believe. Just believe. That's not an answer. What about this? Would you say nothing? Some of you are saying, yes, this has been me. I tried to keep the peace. I've given an answer. I don't have an answer because Christians for some reason are afraid to say these three words, I don't know. And to just add four more words to it, but I'll find out. And for some reason, we don't do that. Would you say nothing? What about this? Would you dismiss the question and walk away? Would you simply say, no, not a good question, and not even address it? Or, which is all too common, would you become angry and act defensive? How do Christians normally defend the faith? Here's the most common way I see. The most common way I see Christians defend the faith today is this. The Bible says it, I believe it, so that settles it. Now, whether you say those words literally or that is what you believe in your heart, that is the most common way that Christians approach their faith because they do not have intellectual integrity to respond and give reasons for why they believe. The Bible says it. I believe it. That settles it. You ever gone to an elderly Christian person or a person that you respect in your church, and you give them a question, and you say, I want to know, what do you think about this? What's our reason for believing in creation, for example? And that person say to you, the Bible says that the world was created in six days. I believe that. That settles it. I can tell you that's not helpful. Number one, i got to answer the question, what is it that you believe? What is it? Have you understood Scripture correctly? Or, what does your belief have to do with truth? You say that it's only settled since you believe in it, but your belief doesn't matter about truth. You can believe you're a car, but that doesn't make you one. Your belief and truth are not the same thing. The truth exists and obtains in reality whether or not you believe it. It doesn't matter. And the last problem is this. 
that settling it may be fine for you, but beliefs without reason cannot settle doubt. We cannot simply give people, I believe it, that settles it type of answers today. And truth be told, many of us don't believe it. Well, how should we respond? If you have your Bibles, you can turn in them to 1 Peter 3.15. How should we respond to questions like the ones I posed or to attacks against the faith that ask us particularly, how or why do you believe what you believe? Here's what Peter says. In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Notice the first thing that Peter tells us to do is to honor Christ. Why should you cultivate a mind? Because it honors Christ. Well, you know, a lot of people will tell me, well, that's not my thing. I've had a lot of people tell me, you know, you talk too much theology. I'm not about theology. Well, unfortunately, Christian, God doesn't give you the right to say you're not going to cultivate the mind. I don't get to say I'm not going to cultivate the virtue of charity. We don't get an option. This is not a buffet of Christian virtues. It is a three-course meal and you will eat what's set before you. Cultivate the mind. You have to honor Christ with your mind. Peter says, honor Christ the Lord as holy. And then he explains how. Now, when he says the word honor Christ, he is looking on the inside. He is saying that there is something in us. There is an understanding. There is an appreciation for this pursuit of knowledge. In other words, what J.I. Packer called, there is the chief, the greatest thing that we can do. The, the chief goal of man is to know God. But today, we don't even want to know God. We do want to know what Kanye's new baby's named, but we don't want to know God. We do want to know what happens on scandal, but we don't want to know God. We do want to know who wins the Super Bowl. By the way, it was the Eagles, Daniel, not the Patriots. But we don't want to know God. And you know what happens with all of those things? They are passing away, yet God never passes away. We know so much about things that are going to be burnt up and nothing about the everlasting God. He says, honor Christ, the Lord is holy, always being prepared. I'll give you a little context here of what's going on. Peter writes this letter to a group of Christians who are living what he calls in exile. They've been removed from their land. They're in a foreign land. They're the minority, if you will. And not only are they living there, but they're under persecution. Because their belief is the minority belief, they're being mistreated for that belief. They're being laughed at and mocked. They're being kept out of the social circle. 
And Peter writes to respond to them. And what he doesn't say to them is, just be silent. You don't want to get in trouble. Don't say anything about your religion because you'll lose your job. He says, be always be prepared. When we have hurricane scares every year, we go and we get supplies. And meanwhile, we're watching all the time, trying to see whether or not that hurricane is going to hit us. And we work so hard. We put up so many shutters. We get so many bottled waters, so many cans of Campbell's Chunky Soup, that you're almost disappointed when the thing doesn't come. I hear you. Oh, man, I worked so hard. I think one leaf blew off my tree. What'd you want? It's because you're prepared. You're looking for the fight. But many of us today aren't looking for the fight because our windows aren't boarded up. We don't know how to engage the culture when they ask us these questions. I know. Someone shared with me they were in, they, at their work, they were sharing that this morning that at their work, they'll get into water cooler discussions and that when they, would, when they would speak at this, they would defend the Christian faith and that later on, a couple of the guys would come and say, hey man, I believe, in, uh, I believe what you were saying. And his response was, well, why didn't you say anything? Because they weren't prepared. But you know what this brother was? He was prepared to give a defense. The word there for defense is the Greek word apologia. It's from which we get our word apologize. It means to give a reason for something. Not to say, I'm sorry for being a Christian, but to explain why you are one. Give a defense. Use your voice. He says here, to anyone who asks you for a reason. What is your reason? Why do you believe what you believe? Do you really believe in talking snakes? Do you really believe that a man rose from the dead? Do you really believe that that man will come back? Do you really believe that that man is God? Do you really believe that the Holy Spirit in, in made him in an incarnation in the Virgin Mary? Do you really believe that the Bible is God's word? And you just can't say, it says it, I believe it, that settles it. Because after all, Christian, what you're claiming about your belief is not that it's your belief, but that it is true. If it's true... Don't be worried about giving a reason. And then lastly, Peter reminds us with this. He says it's a reason for hope. And that word hope there, if you look at it throughout his letters and throughout all of the letters in the New Testament, when you see these words, the hope, he is not specifically talking about your hope, but the hope. Your hope and the hope may be two different things. You may have a false hope. You know, potted plants don't answer prayers. You can hope, like the prophets of Baal hoped on Mount Carmel, that Baal was going to show up and light that meat on fire. And they really hoped. But they hoped in what was false. 
And Elijah hoped in what was true. And God on that day demonstrated that he is the truth. Peter says the hope. Christian teaching. What you heard. What is the hope? That a man for us today, for them, a man some 30 years ago, for us today, a man 2,000 years ago, came and was God, truly God, truly man, died for the sins of the world and was raised. And the hope is that that's going to happen to us too. Paul says that the resurrection is the first fruits of the resurrected life. That that's not only what happened to Jesus, but that it's going to happen to you if you believe on his name. And if you don't believe on his name, you're not going to rise. Not to life, at least. So Peter says, be ready to give a reason for the hope. Not your hope, not why you believe, but the hope. And do it with gentleness and respect. How should you respond should you agree? Some Christians think they can. They simply deny the historicity, the inspiration, and the inerrancy of the Bible and redefine Christianity as following the golden rule, doing unto others as you would have them do unto you. But of course you shouldn't agree. Should you tell them just to believe without giving them an answer? Not what Peter tells you to do. Peter tells you to give a reason. What about, should you say nothing? Peter says, be prepared to talk, man. Be prepared to open your mouth. When the Christian faith is being attacked, be prepared to defend it. Because you know what happens, Christian, when you remain silent and the world thinks that they can take a little bit more? They're going to take a little bit more. And a little bit more. And a little bit more. Until they have it all. Because you remain silent. Because you have bought the lie that you are to keep your faith out of the public sphere. You cannot remain silent. Peter says, give a reason. Defend your faith. And do you know that early in the Christian church, men like Tertullian and Justin Martyr wrote letters to the emperor saying, you cannot persecute these people. Here's why. It was life or death then. For many today around the world, it's still life or death. And let me tell you something, Christian, it could be in this country, life or death for you too. We're already trying to decide whether or not you have the right with your religious beliefs if that religious belief right is greater than a person's right to buy a cake from you or to buy flowers from you or to be married in your church because we're not sure. And let me tell you, the trajectory is you don't have that right. So should you remain silent? Of course not. Peter says, no. Would you dismiss the question and walk away? Peter says, don't you do that. Even if the question's stupid, you respond to it. And should you get angry? Of course not. Do it with gentleness and respect. Let me talk to you then really quickly about several ways that you can begin to defend your faith. Number one, be prepared. 
So that's what not to do, but this is what to do. Be prepared. How do you prepare today to give a reason for the hope that's within you? I can tell you, you cannot be prepared to talk meaningful about life's most meaningful issues when you are spending the night watching Netflix. When you never pick up your Bible, when you never read another Christian book, when you don't even know your own Bible, as one brother told me this week, he met a Rastafarian one day and he said to him, don't, I was going to do the accent, but it would have been bad. He said, don't, yeah, I want, I want to do it. <laughs> just bear with me, okay? I don't want you to miss this. I'm just going to tell you. He said, don't tell me about my Bible until you know about yours. And the guy told me, he said he went home and he said, I didn't know about my Bible. He was right. Be prepared. What does the Bible tell us about homosexuality? What does the Bible tell us about gambling, social justice? What does the Bible tell us about these things? And do not, trust me, you're going to be surprised. What does the Bible tell us about science and faith and reason? You're going to be surprised by the Bible, by the way. Because you've bought a line about all of these things from your pastor and from your culture. And when you read the Bible, you find that God is much more reasonable than most of your pastors have been. Go to the Word. Go to the Word. Be prepared. Be ready. Do not simply coast by. I'm afraid that Christian, that, that persecution is going to come to this country and so many of you aren't going to get persecuted. You say, what do you mean you're afraid about that? That sounds good. No, it's bad because no one knows you're a Christian. You don't live like one, you don't talk like one, and you don't even know what you believe. But hey, there was that time you came down the aisle. No. Jesus never said come down an aisle. What did he say? Follow me. Well, since he's alive, you still got to walk where he walks. Be prepared. Not only that, be quick to listen. Not everybody has the same issue. Christians, there is a tendency to just steamroll people with your doctrine. Stop and listen. Now, people who are not believers might say some offensive things. That's okay. They're sinners. They're lost. Certainly, I'm sure Jesus was offended when he was called a blasphemer. Someone said to him, I'm sure you have a demon in you now. That's pretty offensive. Christian, don't be so sensitive that you're not willing to get into the battle. You have a person at your work who doesn't believe and they want to have you over for dinner? Go! You have a friend who's struggling, they don't love Jesus, they want you to answer the question, but their lifestyle, maybe it's some kind of sexual immorality, is going to offend you? Go! Be quick to listen. You don't know what they're struggling with. In fact, if you want to diagnose the problem, you've got to know exactly what the symptoms are. Be quick to listen. Not only that, but be slow to speak. Hold off. Be slow to speak. 
Think about your words before you say them. Too many times Christians say dumb things. Dumb things. I know that I've been responsible for plenty of dumb things that I've said. But some of our pastors who are global pastors and who can be picked up on the internet at any time have said some really dumb things in this past year alone. Because they didn't think. Even to the point of heresy. Be slow to speak. Think about what you're going to say. Defend without being defensive. Christian, when a person attacks your faith, they're attacking, attacking God, not you. Understand that this faith is God's truth. You're a beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. You understand? You need the bread of life just like they do. Defend, but don't be defensive. Oh, I remember this one guy got up out of class one day because this teacher was talking about some kind of spiritualism. I think it was some kind of shamanism. And he got up and he left and he said, I'm never coming back. And I went to that brother. He was a Christian. I said, man, why, why'd you leave? He said, man, he said, man, I didn't like what that woman was saying. What she was talking about was, it was just blasphemy against God. And it was. And he got angry at her. And he said mean things. It's no good. It's no good. You can defend without being defensive. You know something Spurgeon said one time? He said, the Bible is like a tiger. All you have to do is open the cage and let it loose. You don't have to apologize for what it does. Bible will do plenty. Just speak it. Don't be defensive. After all, these views are God's, not yours. You believe what God has told you to believe. It would be much easier had God just allowed me to do gay marriage. We could probably pay off. We could probably get, you know, nicer, uh, uh, what do you call them, uh, the, the projectors so that you don't get this kind of gray, zoned-out picture. I'd be doing weddings every week. I have some gay family members and some friends. I don't like hurting their feelings. It's not my belief. It's God's. I don't really like that whole thing about loving your enemy. Why? I want to hate my enemy. I don't like the idea of praying for them. Those who persecute me? I don't want to forgive my brother more than once, let alone seven times, let alone 490 times. But it's not my truth. It's God's. And since it's God's, it's not just subjectively true. It's true for everyone. Defend without being defensive. Don't give an answer. Give a reason. Don't give an answer. Give a reason. A reason is different than an answer. A reason supports the claim. Why do you believe that God created the world and created the heavens and the earth? Oh, because it clearly makes much more sense than naturalism does. Naturalism is the belief that there is no God and that this all happened by accident. You believe that God created the world in six days? Yeah, what do you believe? That nothing plus no one equals everything? You believe that no mind gave rise to minds? 
You believe the eye that performs 1,100 functions per second does so by accident? When you walk in a field and you come across a watch, do you ask why all of those parts in the, in the internal part of the watch work together? Not just working together, but work together for a purpose. Do you ever ask how things that are irreducibly complex, that is, things that could not work unless all of the parts were there at the first moment and they had to work together for the they had to work together in the same sequence for a purpose. Have you ever asked how that happens at the biological level? What is DNA after all? DNA is a four-letter language. It's a code. It's information. And I don't know about you, but I've never read a book that has been written by a non-mind. I'm ready to answer why I believe God created the heavens and the earth. I think there's better evidence. But do you? Do you show the world that Christianity is true, not just your belief? Don't give an answer. Give a reason. Lastly, speak the truth in love. Be loving. When you're prepared, you don't have to be defensive. When you are on the side of right, you know what's true. You don't have to be defensive. You don't have to worry. Because you know the truth. And you can speak the truth in love. So I ask you this morning, is there hope to find the evangelical mind? I believe there is. But let me explain to you how that happens. That happens one person at a time. Each and every one of you in this church have to decide that knowing God is important. And not knowing the God that you want to make up in your mind, but the God who is, who was, and who will forever be. You have to first decide that this is important to know God. That it's more important to know who God is than how the walking dead ends or who wins Project Runway. Now, I'll be honest with you, I'll just stop right here. I don't think we're convinced of that. I do not think that we believe knowing God is the highest end in human culture. What is the chief end, the goal of man? To love God and to enjoy Him forever. Many of you are excited about someone you don't know. And as Bob Coughlin says, if you knew the real one, I think you'd like him better. You have to be convinced in your mind that this is important to know God. When Paul went to Athens, he looked at all of the gods and it says his spirit was provoked. My children were sitting on the couch with me last night and my wife and a movie came on endorsing a young man who was gay. We had just had to change the channel because the show that Disney was putting on was about a young, or one of the channels, was about a young transgender kid. Do, do, do you look at the idols of your world and does that provoke you? Not to anger, but to defend your children, to defend your brothers and sisters, to defend your own mind. There's hope for the evangelical mind, but you've got to start by caring. You have to understand that this is 
most important. Not only that, you've converted your spirit, but your mind isn't converted. Because you don't know why you believe what you believe. Number three, you have to move your beliefs from the periphery to the center. Ask yourself this question, what is the very core of who I am? What is it that defines you? What's the very core? So many of you, you'll look, if you really look and you look at what your life is doing, it's your career. Or it's your hobby. It's your blog. It's your favorite sports team. It's sports itself. It's women. It's men. It's sex. It's money. It's drugs. And Christianity is just something you do from time to time. But if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. The old has passed away. The new has come. The call, Christian, is to follow Jesus. The rich man had done everything except leave all of his idols behind and make Jesus the center of his life. We have to move our beliefs from out here on the side into the middle. God will, if you are his children, make sure that you do so. He will put something in your life for your grace, for your good, that will bring you to your knees, that will make him the center. Now, I don't say that to make you afraid. I say that to proclaim God's goodness. Because I can tell you recently, God brought me and my wife to our very knees. Every day. What's the center of your being? Lastly, you have to discipline your mind. It's going to take work. This verse that we've selected for the year is not by accident. It is not simply a nice verse to memorize. It is a command to action. Study. To show yourself approved of God, a workman who doesn't need to be ashamed, who rightly divides the word of truth. Why? so that you can be prepared to give a reason for the hope that's within you. You know, the goal is not simply to make Christianity something that we believe or something that's out there as one other option. It is to bring people to the faith. There's hope for your neighbors. There's hope for those loved ones who are rejecting God. There's hope for your children. There's hope for your wayward children. There's hope for your adult children. There's hope for your brothers and your sisters. There is hope. But God will not use you if you're not prepared. Be prepared to give a defense, a reason for the hope that is within you. Cultivate the Christian mind. Let's pray. God, your word is a proclamation. The whole gospel is simply a proclamation of news. It tells us what happened. We have not 
given ourselves to a fairy tale, but we are following a real and risen Savior who died on our behalf and who you, by your power, rose from the grave, who now intercedes on our behalf. Lord, we have to proclaim Jesus' name because we believe. And so my prayer is, Lord, I don't know how you'll do it, but make our people love you more and desire to know you more. And through this, God, let this church make an impact for South Florida. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.